If you do not have a Bible with you, yeah, there's some Bibles in the pews that you can grab. Uh, We'll be on page 981. And yeah, if you're new, uh, what we do every week is, obviously we spent some time singing praises, spent some time in prayer, and then now we'll spend some time sitting under the Word of God in the Scripture. And we've been in the book of Philippians, which is a short book, relatively speaking, uh, and we will continue to march through it this morning. So, every night, I read my daughters a story. Every night. They love stories, right? Ella, do you like stories? Yeah. Sometimes they want to read the same story over and over and over again. From a young age, we as human beings crave stories. We want to hear good stories. We want to be part of a good story. And every night I also read a passage from our children's Bible. And, you know, what is the Bible other than the story. It's the story about the author writing himself into the story in order to show his chosen people his faithfulness. The word faithfulness that we're going to dwell on today, the word faithfulness implies a story. If you were to define God's faithfulness, wouldn't it be this? It's the story of his goodness over time. He is faithful despite difficulty. He is faithful despite troubling circumstances. You don't get faithfulness without a period of time and a long one at that when we're describing God's faithfulness. And this is even baked into our marriage vows. You know, a few weeks ago, Matt and Karina got married right on this stage. And some of the vows said something along these lines. Do you promise to love her, comfort her, honor and keep her for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, and forsaking all others, be faithful? Only to her for as long as you both shall live. And the answer was, I do. In marriage, there is an expectation that being faithful is going to be difficult. That there will be better times and worse times. There will be richer times and poorer times. There will be healthy times and sick times. Faithfulness is shorthand for loyalty over time and through difficulty. So last week, we reflected on Timothy, Paul's good buddy, and how selfless he was. This week, we're introduced to a new dude named Epaphroditus. And this is the guy who brought the gift from this Philippian church to Paul, while he was in prison. And he also 
brought this letter back from Paul to the Philippian church. So we wouldn't be under, you know, sitting under the teaching of this letter if it weren't for Epaphroditus. He, he delivered this letter by hand to this church. Through him, we are taught about gospel faithfulness. So what does it look like to be faithful to the gospel over time and through trial? What are the ingredients of gospel faithfulness in a church community? Epaphroditus shows us, and he does so in the form of a story. So we're going to read the story here in Scripture, and then, and then we'll do something special with the kids. So we're in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 25. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Your Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word comes to us in many forms, one of which is that of a letter from a person to persons. And Lord, we want to, to glean from your word this morning what you would have to say to us, what you would have to say by your Holy Spirit who helped Paul pen this letter, what you would have him say to us also. And we pray that you would do the work that only you can do by your word and by your spirit. Speak your words this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... Trying something new here. Uh, kids, I'd love to invite you forward. If you want to sit on this front pew right over here, um, who's going to be the, the brave first? Yeah, Zoe. Zoe's the brave one. Come on. Come on forward. Sit right on that pew right there. Yeah, right there. Yeah, I think there's enough room. Scoot in. Awesome. Cool. I don't see Thea, but that's okay. Awesome. All right. Do you guys like stories? Yeah. Do your parents read you stories pretty much every day? Probably. Most days? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes moms and dads are busy, right? Okay, so I'm going to tell you a story, and it's the story about a person who was faithful to God, okay? All right. So, once upon a time, there was a man who hated Jesus. 
Yeah. Can you imagine that? That doesn't seem possible, does it? That's not nice. The man was riding a horse a long ways away. And you know what he was doing? He was riding a horse a long ways away in order to hurt people who loved Jesus. It's rude, I know. But guess what? Jesus showed up. Here the guy was, riding his horse, minding his own business, clippity-clop, in order to hurt people, and boom, Jesus shows up in a bright light and blinds him, and he falls off his horse, lands on his back. (laughs) Then he meets Jesus for the first time, and guess what? Now he loves Jesus. This man's name was Paul. After that, instead of hating Jesus and hurting people who loved Jesus, Paul now loved Jesus and became a person who got hurt because he loved Jesus. Do you want to come sit by me? Sure. Right there. So, Instead of traveling a long way to hurt people who loved Jesus, Paul traveled a long way to tell people about Jesus, which sometimes meant people hated him. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, come sit over here. It's all good. Yeah, I think it's the same one. Zoe knows this story. So he did that a lot. He traveled a long ways to tell people about Jesus, and people ended up hating him. And one day, he was sent, oh, let's stay off the stage. Let's stay on the steps, okay, guys? (laughs) I should have seen this coming. Um, So one day, he was sent to jail. He was sent to jail for loving Jesus. Can you believe that? So there he was in jail, this guy named Paul. He was lonely. He missed his church friends. But there was a church full of people who loved Jesus and loved Paul in a city called Philippi who sent him something. They sent him a basket, a basket full of money, food, blankets, and activity books. Coloring books, maybe. Definitely parchments. Okay, so they sent him this gift in order that he would know he was loved. And one of the people from the church was the one who brought Paul this gift. Guess what his name was? His name was Epaphroditus. Can you imagine that? How would you like to have a name like Epaphroditus. No thanks. But Epaphroditus brought Paul a gift while he was in jail. Isn't that nice? That sounds pretty good. Sounds sounds good so far. But wait, not so fast. 
Epaphroditus had to travel a long way to deliver his gift. How do you travel a long way? A van, okay. Yeah, do a road trip. How do you travel a long way? A car? An airplane, maybe? A train. Yeah. Right. So we travel a long ways with special Uh, vehicles, right? Trains, planes, automobiles. But guess what? Back then, you had to walk. Or you could ride a horse. But this guy walked. And who here likes taking long walks? Yeah? You know how long this walk would have taken? Nine days. Over 700 miles. Yeah. He walked 700 miles to deliver this gift basket to Paul. You know what happened on the journey? He got sick. He got so sick that he was about to die. Isn't that sad? I don't know. He might have had water, but maybe the water didn't help. And maybe he didn't have water because if you don't have water, he would die. It's true. When you're sick, what do you do? You get medicine. Medicine. Drink lots of water. In the back old days, there was water, but it might have been dirty water. And there definitely wasn't medicine like we have today, right? Yeah. Soup. And soup. Mm-hmm. I was sick, I didn't soup. You didn't eat soup. I didn't Just PB and J. Well, this guy got so sick that he almost died, but he still delivered the gift basket. Did he die from that? Well, let's find out. His friend Paul was so happy and thankful that he brought him this gift basket. But Paul was also really sad for his friend. He prayed for him all the time, but he wasn't getting better. Epaphroditus lost his appetite. He didn't want to eat. He could hardly sleep. He didn't have any energy to do anything. It seemed like all hope was lost. Isn't that a bummer? You should feel sad for him, and that makes total sense. But, but, one day, he was hungry again. One day, he could sleep a little bit better. One day, he had energy to walk around the block. He was getting better. It took a while, but finally, he was all the way better. Isn't that great? And Paul, his friend, he was so happy for him that he said, Epaphroditus, why don't you go home to your church family and celebrate what God has done for you? Sounds good. So Paul packed him up for his journey, included a small four-chapter thank you note for the church to deliver to his family back in Philippi, 
But mostly, the letter was going to encourage them to be more like Epaphroditus in being faithful to God no matter what. The end. Isn't that great? What a good story. (laughs) You guys did great. Okay, you can go back to sit wherever you were. So gospel faithfulness, it implies a story. It implies ups, and it implies downs. This passage shows us some ingredients that empower us for gospel faithfulness in community. We're going to look at three pairs of ingredients in this story. We'll start with this pair, love and collaboration. Look at verse 25 and 26. It says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So in the grand scheme of Paul's plans here, Paul before he sends his best friend, Timothy, his closest companion, he's going to wait and see what the verdict of his trial is. You know, he's sitting in prison, awaiting his trial date. He does not know for sure, although he's confident that he'll be released, but he doesn't know for sure. And so Timothy's going to stay with him. But in the meantime, he's decided to send Epaphroditus, their hometown boy, Back to Philippi. Somehow, word has gotten back to the Philippian church that he was sick, but they hadn't yet heard the news that he got better. And so Paul, for him, it's necessary. And that word is urgent. He says, I thought it urgent to send Epaphroditus back to you for all of their sakes. For for Epaphroditus' sake, for the Philippian church's sake, even for Paul's sake, so that it says he wouldn't have more anxiety (laughs) knowing that their good man was sick. And so Paul introduces Epaphroditus, and he uses no less than five labels here. Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. What a guy. And mostly these labels are of productivity, stuff that he does. Stuff he's actively doing. But first, let's take a look at the person underneath. In verse 26, we learn that while Epaphroditus is sick, he is longing for his home church. And that word longing is the same word that Paul uses in chapter 1 when he says, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Epaphroditus is longing for them, but he's also distressed. He's distressed because they know he's sick, but they don't know that he's better now. And both of these words, longing and distress, they're they're intense. That word distressed only occurs one other time in the New Testament, and it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Gethsemane. When Jesus was distressed right before he was crucified, it's that same word for his deep anguish. So understandably, emotions are high for Epaphroditus. For all he knows, he is on his deathbed and his only thoughts turn to those he loves, his church family that's over 700 miles away. This is the love that we are invited into as the family of God. The love that displays yearning. The love that is distressed when others are hurting. Before you are productive, before you do any chores as part of this family, you are invited to experience the love that binds us together. Just like Paul received the love of Christ when he says, I yearn for you, how? With the affection of Christ Jesus. This is a borrowed love. So just like Paul receives the love of Christ and pours it out for this church, so did Epaphroditus. So for you, for me, when you are adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ, this is what you get. First and foremost, you get the love of God. And you get a ready-made family who is ready to pour themselves out for you. This love is what motivates us in our doing. This love is what motivates our next steps. So Paul, he's on board with this. Why? Because the first label he gives this guy is brother. Before he's a worker, before he's a soldier, before he's a messenger or a minister, he is a brother. He's a sibling in this family, a co-heir in the family with all the benefits and privileges that that entails. But he doesn't stop there. This, this intense love that we have in the family of God, it leads somewhere. It leads to creative collaboration. Paul goes on to describe all the co-laboring or collaboration that Epaphroditus enters into as one of the siblings in this family. First, Paul uses this word fellow worker. All that means is co-worker. Y'all have co-workers. Paul says, this guy is one of my co-workers. And Paul uses this term extensively across the New Testament to describe many of his ministry friends, men and women, across the New Testament. For Paul, these are those people that have bought in. These are those people who give of their time who give of their talents, who give of their resources, of their passions for the sake of the gospel. For Paul, this is what a co-worker is in the, in the gospel. Epaphroditus was one of these. We are co-workers. You know, I have co-workers that I like and co-workers that are a little bit more difficult to get along with. 
That's the nature of, the, of being co-workers. We are co-workers. We are in the middle of a job. We have a boss. We are doing this together with one another. You know, we might have different roles and different gifts and, and whatnot, but none of us is more important than another. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, another analogy is that we are part of Christ's body. Christ is the head. You might be the fingernail. You might be the mouth. You might be the nose. We are all members of Christ's body, none of us more important than the other because we all need one another. And we are all co-workers. And amazingly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, we are God's fellow workers. So not only are we each other's co-workers, we are God's co-workers, God's fellow workers, invited into the work that he is doing. And he invites us to partner with him. That word in Greek is synergos, synergy. It's that you can't even tell, you know, there's just an intimate partnership there between us and one another and us and God. And that's the first word that Paul uses to describe Epaphroditus, fellow worker. And then he says, fellow soldier. You know, fellow soldier, that's a less used term for Paul. But it's a theme that crops up in several places in the New Testament. Walking with Jesus in the midst of an environment that is hostile to him is not easy. It's a battle. That's the analogy we're given elsewhere. So Paul says, don't be surprised when you face opposition. Don't be surprised when walking out this Christian faith is hard. And he said in Ephesians 6 that we don't battle against flesh and blood. We don't battle against other human beings in this fight. We battle against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. So how do we fight? We fight by laying down our lives for one another. We fight fight by getting on our knees. We fight by praying for not only our friends and our co-workers, but our enemies. That's how Jesus told us to fight. We fight by staying grounded in prayer and God's word, by encouraging, supporting praying for and confessing to one another. That's how we fight. That's how we are fellow soldiers in this battle. So Epaphroditus is a brother. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. And finally, Paul reminds this church that Epaphroditus was successful in accomplishing what they sent him to do. They sent him to be a messenger and a minister. A messenger who brought news and brought provision. And a minister who stayed there beside him, even in the midst of illness, to encourage Paul. 
Since they were 700 miles away, Epaphroditus became their hands and feet. They're encouraging ears and mouths in the name of Christ to mediate God's and Christ's love to them. And so here we see in the person of Epaphroditus, in the person of Paul, in the community of this church, that this love, this foundational love that is borrowed and comes from God, it leads to creative and productive collaboration. That we are in this together. We are on the same page, doing the same thing, although in different contexts, in different vocations. So that's the first pair of ingredients of gospel faithfulness that we see in this story. The next pair is trust and dependence. Look at verse 27. It says, Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So intense love, this, this deep love that this church had for the person named Paul who helped start this church, who was in prison so far away, it led them to send Epaphroditus. To, okay, we can't all be there for him, but let's send a delegate. Let's send someone to minister to Paul. And so they send him. It was a good idea. It was a good idea hatched by good people with good motives. But not everything went as planned. He got sick. There was an interruption. There was an interruption of suffering. From the wording here, this was not just a weekend cold. Back to work on Monday. No. Twice, Paul says that he almost died. That word nearly died in verse 30 is, is at hand. Death was at hand. He was on death's door. He was on his deathbed. Death was knocking. Funeral plans were being arranged. This guy was dying. But then it says, but God. But God. We need to remember always that we are constantly at the mercy of God. We never know when suffering will come. We know it will come. Oftentimes, suffering interrupts the good things you're doing. It interrupts the good things you're doing for God. So we don't know when it will come. We don't know how it will come. And we may never know why it came. If we read the book of Job, we understand suffering doesn't have easy answers. That's why we, like Paul and Epaphroditus, we need to continually exercise both trust and dependence on God. Okay, why do we need to trust God? Because in suffering, in hardship, in interrupting difficulty, we are tempted to doubt His goodness. 
But we don't need to doubt God's goodness in suffering because Jesus foretold to us that suffering was going to come. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation, trial, trouble. Anyone who loves me will be persecuted, he said. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He warned us it was coming. But not only that, but God promises to, in the way only he can, redeem suffering. He promises to redeem it for our good. You know, we still lament. We still grieve. We still, God, we still tell God in no uncertain terms how this suffering makes us feel. If you read the book of Psalms, you find out that that is totally and 100% okay. But when we do that, we do it while still trusting him. So why do we need to be dependent on God? Because life is prone to interruption. Unfortunately, we don't get to set our plans or make our plans, set them in motion and ride into the sunset. That's not life. But in those interruptions, when our our lives are interrupted by things we didn't cause, by things we didn't plan, we can release control to God. Why? Because he's good. The safest place for you is not in well-crafted plans for your life. The safest place for you is in the hands of of the one who rules all of life. That's the safest place for you. And so every story of gospel faithfulness has a but God moment to it. Everyone. If you're a Christian here today, your story is a but God moment. Paul says a few pages earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, He says, you, meaning all people, were dead. Spiritually. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then it says in Ephesians 2, but God. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God, that's your story. If you are in Christ, you have experienced a but God moment. If we're going to be faithful to the gospel as a community, We need to recognize that we are always and every day absolutely desperate for God to work. We are dependent on him. You know, the funny thing is God likes it like that. He wants us to be dependent on him. When we get a hint of success, you know, even even as a church, you know, It's tempting for us to be like, sweet, sweet, we got this, 
We know what we're doing. We baptized 10 people in the last 12 months. You know, we know how to be a gospel community in Capitol Hill. I assure you, we don't. We don't. That's why we need God. We need to trust him. We need to be dependent on him. So trust and dependence. All right, let's look at the last pair. In verses 28 through 30, we find not just love and collaboration, not just trust and dependence, but also celebration. Celebration and recognition. Look at verse 28. He says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I've never had a job that I liked so much that I could become a workaholic until now. As a nurse, I was never a workaholic. You just go to work, you do your thing, you leave. You don't, you're not, you don't take work home, you don't work from home, you just put in your time and leave. Now that I have a job that I'm so passionate about that I could become a workaholic, I'm thankful for a God that doesn't want that. You know, when you find work that you love, you know, whether it's gospel ministry or take whatever passion that you have, you know, it can feel lazy to take a pause. It can feel lazy to celebrate. But Paul commands no such workaholism. That's not our God. Our God is not a workaholic. Our God, after he created the universe, rested. Have you ever thought about that? Did God need to rest? I don't know. <laughs> but he definitely set that as our paradigm. We need to rest. Absolutely. And we need to celebrate. We need to celebrate what he's done. And so Paul, he suggests that at the return of Epaphroditus... They take time to party it up. He says, receive him, welcome him, rejoice. Just, he uses the word joy and rejoice twice here. He's saying, be glad. Look what God did. He brought your man home. He was basically dead. God had mercy on him and now he's alive and he's coming home. Enjoy it. He finished the work. Y'all started, and now he's home. Rejoice. Be glad. Dare I say, have fun in Jesus' name. This is part of what it means to Sabbath. That's what God put in place when he created the world. Six days you shall work. The seventh day shall be a day of rest. It means, too, in the words of Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank. Stop the madness. Who likes Shark Tank? I love Shark Tank. Stop the madness. 
Allow your brain, allow your body to come to a screeching halt at least once a week so you can rest, so you can enjoy and reflect on, God, on what God has done and what God has provided for you. So you can look around and say, okay, I don't need anything else. I have what I have, and I like it because it's what God gave me. That's so good. I love what John Mark Comer says in, in The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which is a book about Sabbath. He says, yeah, Sabbath is a command, but it's like a command to eat ice cream. You shalt eat ice cream. Are you going to say, oh, I don't want to do that. That seems legalistic. <laughs> Just eat it. It's amazing. Sabbath, it's good. Of course, the people in Jesus' day twisted that and made it legalistic. But the spirit of Sabbath is a spirit of rest, celebration, and what God has provided for you. And ultimately, Jesus Christ is our Sabbath. He is our rest. But when we embody that on a weekly basis, we can learn that even deeper down. We need to rest. I'm not very good at this. You know, if I stop, I start to feel less productive. And if I feel less productive, I start to feel less valuable. But that's pride. Because my value does not come from what I do. My value comes from who I am, created in God's image, who I'm becoming in Christ. My value comes from who I am loved by. That's good news. God baked rest into the very fabric of human society, and we've been rebelling against it since Genesis 3. So Paul says to celebrate his return, but he also says to honor such men. So we celebrate, but we also recognize. You know, we're allowed to pause and say yay to what God has done. But we're also allowed to pause to point and say yay to what those in our midst have done in the name of Christ. How cool is that? You know, just like Jesus will one day say, Lord willing to all of us, well done, good and faithful servant. So we can turn to one another and say, well done, good and faithful servant of Christ. I'm proud of you. That's what Paul says to do. He says, honor them. Epaphroditus risked his life to finish what they had started. And you know, when Paul says risking his life to complete what was lacking, you know, he's not kind of giving them a, a backhanded compliment or a, he's not, you know, exhorting them. He's saying, you're 700 miles away. You couldn't be there for me, and that's understandable. He filled that up. He filled up, which is the, the same word as complete filled up what was lacking. He covered the distance. He's just acknowledging that they were far away and can't be there for him, but this guy was able, despite an awful interruption, to fill in the gaps on their behalf. 
This is a beautiful story. You know, it's full of drama and, and emotion. The intense love in this community has bred a culture of collaboration and partnership. And even in the midst of unexpected suffering, there is trust and dependence on God. And finally, an attitude of celebration and recognition when God shows up through his people. But what does it all hinge on? Notice that, look at what Epaphroditus almost died for. It says, he nearly died, in verse 30, for the work of Christ. All of us fellow workers, who are also God's co-workers, are working not for our idea, not for our organization, but for the work of Christ. You know, Paul says in Ephesians that God saved you by his lavish grace, period. Out of his love. Okay? You got to digest that. You got to fully digest that. But then it goes on. It goes on and it says that he prepared you for good works. That you are his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You know, these good works are lowercase g good works. And these lowercase g good works inform and reflect the capital G good work that God has done in Christ is doing in Christ, and will do. Passion for this work is the north star of this church in Philippi and here. This work of Christ, this is the lens through which we view one another. This is the lens through which we view our vocations, our jobs, This is the lens through which we view suffering and the lens through which we view success. Jesus invites us into this when he says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. Have you discovered that Jesus and the life that he offers and the work that he gives is worth losing your life for. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for this story. We thank you for those in our midst that we can look at and say, yeah, that's gospel faithfulness. And Lord, all of our faithfulness to you is all contingent and rooted in your faithfulness to us. That though we are faithless, you remain faithful. And so whenever we become unfaithful to you, we can always, always, every time, go back to your faithfulness to us. 
The, the door of your faithfulness is always open to us, no matter how far we've strayed from you. We praise you for that. You're the only one. Your gospel is the only work that is worth us laying our lives down for because you laid down your life for us. And so afresh, the last day of April, as we head into a new month, as individuals and as a church community, Lord, help us to be faithful to your gospel. Help us to find more hope in your plan for us than we find hope in our plan for ourselves. Please give us that strength. Inspire us by your, by your gospel and by your Holy Spirit. Fill us. In Jesus' name, amen.